invite you to be seated. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. Uh, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets, so toward the end of your Old Testament, right after Jonah. And uh, by minor prophets, I mean this is like, I feel like I've got to say this. Everybody says this whenever they preach on a minor prophet. It's not minor in the sense of less valuable or less worthy of our attention. It's minor in the sense of smaller books. So there are 12 minor prophets, and the the Hebrew Scripture calls them just the 12, the book of the 12, and they are part of the prophets section of the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to beginning, be beginning a new series in the book of Micah. Now, last year, uh, we decided to spend the entire year in the Old Testament. And I'm, I, I can only speak for myself in this, but I found it very helpful and fruitful in my own life, as well as a little bit intimidating at times. Yet it was incredibly profitable for me. And uh, a, a few years ago, Josh Gillespie, who's one of the elders here, made a comment in passing that stuck with me. And he said that we tend to neglect the Old Testament. And in spending most of our time if not all of our time in the New Testament, we subtly imply that the Old Testament is outdated, superseded, and not relevant to us today. Now, that's not exactly what he said. That's my paraphrase of it. Uh, but it brought to mind, like, that's really sat with me over the last couple of years, and I've thought about that. And, and I think that that's true. Um, because I, I don't know about you, but I've never heard anybody preach from the book of Micah. Um, and we were talking about it this morning during the prayer time, and uh, it's like, why, why don't they do that? Well, in chapter one, as I started looking into it, I, I get it. It's, it's a tough book, right? It's a difficult book, and especially hard for us to apply in our day today and to understand how this is relevant to us. Yet 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correction, reproof, and instruction, training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped. Now, when Paul said that, he had in mind the Old Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul references the Old Testament and says that these things were written for our instruction and the things that he mentioned happened to the Israelites as an example to us. So we should give our attention to the Old Testament because it is God's word and it is inspired and it has been preserved for us to learn from. And so we're going to be spending some time in the coming weeks in the book of Micah. Um, and there, you may have heard sections preached from this book. I know I have, and it's typically around Christmas when, you know, the, the coming Messiah is promised and predicted. But I think we tend to shy away from some of these minor prophets because they are kind of intimidating. And there's another reason, I have to confess, there's another reason why we're going through Micah. It's the fact that Micah, in particular, Micah 6.8, has become a bit of a buzz text and has become co-opted for the purpose of social justice movement and woke theology, so-called woke theology, I thought it would be helpful for us to actually go through the book and to see what God's word has to say from this book so that we can examine it together and think through it together since the verse almost exclusively that has become a common text is one that is cited within a larger context. And so with that, we're going to begin today by looking at the first chapter. I want to do this by going through the text together and then ending by making some application. So this is the word of the Lord 
says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like water pours down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not at Gath, weep not at all. In uh, Bethlehem, roll yourselves in dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shapir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon, do not come out. In lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Morath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the steed to the chariots inhabitants of Lashish. It was the beginning of, of sin to the daughter of Zion for you were found, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Goth the house of Ashab, I shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marasheth. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word that the Lord has for us this morning. See why we wanted to preach this one? What do you do with that? Like, I've got to be honest with you. I wondered that all week. All week. Like, normally, I have something. I have something midweek. And granted, I don't really start writing anything down until Saturday night. But I have something. I've got, like, an idea. I had nothing with this. What do you do with this? And then I saw the structure of the text. And the structure of this text is two oracles that are separated by decades. The first oracle is in verses 2 through 7, and the second oracle is 10 through 16. We see the very first verse that Micah ministered over a significant amount of time. He was ministering in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So He had a significant period of time that he was ministering. And we see that the kings ruled, that ruled during his ministry. And so we see that this book covers that significant amount of time. And one of the things to keep in mind with Hebrew literature is they are not as concerned with being strictly linear in their time. 
So there's this unknown but significant amount of time that passes between the first and second oracles in the first chapter. And the first oracle is primarily concerned with um, the, king, uh, the northern kingdom, with Israel. And the second oracle is concerned with the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, it's important to remember that the northern kingdom, with Samaria as its capital, ran off the rails almost immediately. We'll come to that in a minute. And the southern kingdom had their fair share of bad kings, and they had problems, but nowhere near as bad as the north. In fact, the southern kingdom enjoyed various righteous kings. So that's sort of the context. That's, that's where we're, that's the, sort of the structure of this first chapter. And so the first point that I want us to see this morning is that there is a warning of judgment. There's a warning of judgment. The first oracle is pretty straightforward. It has God set on his throne in his temple, and he acts as the judge of the whole earth. It says, hear you peoples of uh, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And just a side note, high places tend to be, that's referring to places where uh, worship happened. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So here's a picture of God enthroned in his holy temple, looking down and saying, everybody on earth, pay attention, I'm coming. And when I come, things are not going to be going well for you. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be mountains that are going to be trampled. All of these high places of worship are going to be trampled down in my coming. Now, this was not uncommon for Israelites to hear, especially about the pagan cultures around them, the pagan, pagan peoples around them. And so you can imagine as Micah is presenting this oracle because uh, he ministered both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom right? So Samaria and Jerusalem. And, and he's saying this, all of the Jewish people are like, mm-hmm. yep, that's right. That's right. Get, get them. Those pagans, those outsiders, those people that are not part of God's people. And then we come to verse five. This is all for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. You can hear the air being sucked out of the room. Okay. Excuse me, Michael, what? I thought we were talking about all the peoples. And Micah's saying, no, God's coming down and he's going to execute his judgment because of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. So now you can imagine as he's saying this, the southern people, the people of Judah are like, uh-huh. yeah, we know. Those people up there, they're idolaters. They're no better than all the rest of the people. They're exactly the same. And then he says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And the people of Judah are like, yep, sure is. Samaria, right? It's kind of like, it kind of has that idea of, uh, remember the Pharisee that went praying? He's like, I thank God I'm not like this man. And then he starts touting all of his religious credentials. But then Micah continues, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So here's the picture of what's happening. The northern kingdom has gone off the rails. They went off the rails from the very beginning. Come back to that in a minute. Micah is saying, 
this is, this is bad. God's coming down. He's going to judge the nations. And the reason he's doing that is because of Israel. And what's happening, what's going to happen to Israel is soon going to make its way to Judah. You people better pay attention to what I'm saying right now. Because it's coming. And he says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into a valley and uncover her foundations. So the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, is in trouble. And that trouble is coming from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And then what we have in verses 10 through 16 is a second oracle that focuses exclusively on the southern kingdom of Judah. Now keep in mind that the, a couple decades probably have passed. It's been 10, 20 years, something like that since the first one. Micah lived through the destruction of the northern kingdom. And so now he comes back on the scene and he starts talking about Judah. And, and what he does is he sort of takes us on a tour through some of the various cities of the kingdom of Judah. And what he does here is totally lost in English. So I'm going to do my best to try to, to preserve some of the punch of what he's doing. But what he's doing is he's taking and doing some play on words and puns to show that things are going to get really, really bad for the whole kingdom. He takes these cities and then he equates them with words that these cities sound like or takes the meaning of the city and then shows how that meaning is prophesying its own doom. Okay, so let me, let me walk through this. Uh, in, in verse 10, tell it not to Gath, weep not at all. Now, Gath is where David wept over the death of Jonathan. And so he starts right there with David and he says, don't weep. And then he goes on to, uh, uh, where am I at? Verse 10, verse 11. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 10. Bethlehapraf, roll yourselves in death. Well, Bethlehapraf means house of dust. And he says, roll yourselves in dust. And then he goes on and Shapir means pleasant. And he says, pass away, you habitants of, of Shapir, in nakedness and shame. That's not very pleasant. Zanin sounds like the word come out in Hebrew. The inhabitants of Zanin do not come out. Bethazel means adjoining house. And he says, Bethazel shall take away from you in its standing place or in its house. Maroth sounds like bitter. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Bitterness awaits them. Disaster is coming. Lashish means or sounds like the term team of horses. Harness the steeds to chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. Morsheth sounds like gift or dowry. And then he says, therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The house of uh, Ashzib shall be deceitful things to the kings of Israel. Ashreth or Ashzib means deception. Marasheth sounds like conqueror, and he says, I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marasheth, and the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam is a place where David went and hid in a cave from King Saul. And what he's saying is that 
This destruction is going to come all the way to Jerusalem. It's a picture of all of these cities collapsing in around Jerusalem, and all of the leaders of Jerusalem go on the run and hide out in the same cave that David hid out in from Saul as he was being pursued. And the point is that nowhere is safe. Even the names of your towns predict your destruction. There is nowhere to hide. All of these towns falling are like the noose tightening around the neck of Jerusalem, and she will be left defenseless, and the leaders will have to flee and hide. So there's a warning of judgment. The second thing we need to see from this text is we need to ask the question, why is God judging? Right? That would be a good question to ask. What, what led to this? How did they get to this point where God is bringing this judgment upon them? And part of the answer comes in verse 7. In verse 7, in talking about the northern kingdom, it says, All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all of her wages shall be burned with fire, and her idols shall be laid waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The issue here is idolatry. The issue here is false worship. The issue here is the people of the northern kingdom have set up idols in high places and replaced the worship of the one true God in the way that he has prescribed with false worship, idolatry, and paganism. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel once the nation split into two. And he feared that the people of the northern kingdom would travel down to the southern kingdom to worship at the temple. He, didn't, he wanted a divided kingdom. And so instead of allowing his people in the north to go down to Jerusalem and worship, worship the God Yahweh at the temple like they were supposed to, he made his own temples. He made one in Dan and he made one in Bethel. And in those temples, he placed uh, golden calves, and, and he ascribed those golden calves to be Yahweh. So right from the very start, the northern kingdom went into full-on apostasy, and it didn't stop. If you read about the northern kingdom kings, you don't get any good ones. You get some that will hear the word of the prophet and will maybe change something for a little bit, but it's not actually a genuine heart change. It's a change of behavior, and then they go right back to what they were doing before. The northern kingdom is totally corrupt, totally abandoned God. And what's interesting is that that idolatry, being a huge problem in the north, has actually seeped into the south. The north acted like an unfaithful husband turning to prostitutes rather than to God, and so they would be handed over to the Assyrians whose idolatry was unmatched, who would take all of their golden calves and all of their instruments of worship and all of their idols and give them as fees to prostitutes in the Assyrian temples to the Assyrian gods. And while the southern kingdom had not sold out entirely, if you read about the kings of the southern kingdom, you get some bad ones and you get some good ones. They had been infected by this sickness of idolatry that had crept in from the north. And in fact, we see in verse, find it here, 13, harness the steeds to the chariots inhabitants of Lashish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Lashish is a border town with the northern kingdom, and it seems to be that through there, this idolatry started seeping into the south and started leavening throughout the south. So the south didn't necessarily abandon the worship of God wholesale. They just added some additional things to it. That's called syncretism. It's when you take what is 
biblical, what is true, what God ordains, what is Christian, and you add just a little bit of secularism to it. You add just a little bit of side paganism to it. It's, it's like what missionaries experience when they go to cultures that have been totally pagan their entire lives and they introduce the gospel and they want God and their idol. Or they try to ascribe God to that idol and say, well, I'm just worshiping God through worshiping this idol. It's keeping elements of paganism and marrying them to Christianity or to, in this case, um, Jewish um, covenantal uh, law-keeping and, and calling it good. And, and the point is that God has no use for either of them. He is after the singular devotion of his people. And so the southern kingdom, while not as bad and while not as far gone as the northern kingdom, is complicit in this. And notice also that the focus is on the capitals. Both Samaria and Jerusalem are highlighted. The corruption and idolatry was not just a problem in the outlying towns. It was a problem in the capitals themselves. The seats of power were going to fall, and with them the nations, because the evil that had been done and the fact that it had originated within their borders without anything done. In, in the case of the northern kingdom in particular, it originated because of the leadership, because of the king. So God is judging because of idolatry within Israel and Judah. The third point that we need to see from this text is found right in the middle and at the end. Look at verses 8 and 9. Micah, speaking after the first oracle, says, For this I will make lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah is lamenting the sin of Israel. He's lamenting the idolatry of God's people and lamenting the fact that that idolatry has infected his own country of Judah and has made its way to the gates of Jerusalem itself. Then in verse 16, in the end of that second oracle, there is a call to Jerusalem. Make yourselves bald, cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as an eagle for they shall go from you into exile. There's a call for Judah to lament. So Micah is not cold. He's not vindictive. He genuinely cares for his people. And he genuinely cares for God. I mean, Micah is a faithful prophet of God who will stand in front of the powers that be and say, hey, you guys are off the rails. God's coming. He's going to exercise judgment because you guys have fallen into idol worship, whether it's making a new religion that ignores Yahweh or whether it's sprinkling in some of the world's religion with the worship of Yahweh. You're both, at, you're both guilty. And he stands before the people of power and authority and says this, but he doesn't say it with a vindictive attitude. He says it out of genuine care for God and therefore, out of genuine care for God's people, he literally mourns the sin of the northern kingdom that they have abandoned their God, Yahweh. And yet, in the midst of this general, genuine sadness, he boldly proclaims what God has told him because he cares for them, because he's faithful to God. 
And in verse 16, we saw that Jerusalem is called to lament. And the language here is like funeral mourning rituals. Massive destruction is coming, and the nation of Judah will be taken away into captivity. And Micah says, I am lamenting this. Please join me. So the point Micah is making in the first chapter is that Israel, the northern kingdom, will be judged by God for her idolatry and false worship. The fact that God's people have abandoned him causes great sorrow and lamentation in Micah, and yet he is faithful to God's charge out of love for God and his people and proclaims God's coming judgment. And in this is a warning to Judah in the south because they are not pure in their worship either. And what happened in the north is going to happen in the south unless they repent and turn back to God. While not as bad, they have syncretistic worship. A little bit of paganism of the north has seeped into the true worship of God in the south, and it is not in line with how God instructs how he is to be worshipped. And at the very least, the hearts of the people of God are divided. And then some years later, Michael warns against the judgment that God visited in the north and that it is coming to the south and that there is nowhere to hide. All of your strongholds will be torn down. There is no place safe. Even the names of your cities foretell your destruction. All of the cities that look like a refuge will be turned to rubble. And it ends the chapter with calling Jerusalem to lament their sin and the consequences of their sin. So, now, the question is, what do we as Christians in 2022 do with that? Does this speak to us? Is there any application for us? We don't live in the same time. We don't have temples with golden caps where we go to worship. We aren't living in a theocratic nation of Israel. How do we learn from this in 2022 America and in 2022 Nebraska? There's four ways that I think we need to learn from this, four things that we need to take away from this. The first one is that God doesn't change. There's an idea in some professing Christian circles that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. That somehow, God is different between these two testaments. Like, God got with the program, right? He evolved. He repented of his archaic, cruel ways and has now adopted a softer, gentler disposition where at one time he was alive, ferocious, untamed bear. Now he's a little teddy bear that you can cuddle up at night. Like my kids take their bears and they swaddle them and they put things on their heads and their necks and they swing them around and they're teddy bears. They're not going to do anything to them, right? There's this idea that God is somehow different between the Old and New Testaments. And yet, we know from Scripture that God does not change. He is unchanging. And the issue here has to do with God caring how he is worshipped and the fidelity of his people. You see, what we learn from this is that God is not a God who ignores sin and is indifferent to how he is worshipped. 
there is always a reckoning. And yet at the same time, he is patient. Notice that the warning is meant to call people to lament their sin and repent. God has been tremendously patient with this people. And even in this, God's judgment is meant to cleanse and purify and redeem. God is zealous for his people and his holiness. God is transcendent. He is not domesticated. We dare not make God like us so that we might be comfortable with him on our terms. Instead, we must subject ourselves to him and submit ourselves to his word. He is like us, but on his terms. He is creator. We are created. He orders creation. It is up to us to fall in line with that ordering of creation. Try as we may, we cannot tame him without making something up that is not him. We must take him as he is and as he reveals himself to be. Second point of application is that judgment begins in the house of God. The focus here is not on the sins of the other nations. The focus here is on the sins of Israel and Judah. It's on the sins of God's people. God is dealing with the sins of his old covenant people, the Israelites, and God deals with the sins of his new covenant people, the church. In 1 Peter, if you want to go over there real quick, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Go on. There we go. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6 says this. I wrote that down wrong. It's 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? God deals with his own people. He deals with his own people. And in the context of 1 Peter, the way he's dealing with his people is by bringing persecution, by suffering coming. And, he, and Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God through that suffering. If you go over to Ezekiel chapter 9... Verse 6, we read this. Let me go back to verse 5. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him. Uh, let me go back to 4. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. So this is, this is talking about God's people. And put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So he's saying, go through Israel, go through Jerusalem, find all of the faithful people that are mourning and lamenting sin, and put a mark on their heads. And then he says, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike your eye shall not spare, and you shall sow no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch not the one whom is, or on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So the, the idea here is that this doesn't change. Judgment begins with the house of God. God will have his own house in order. 
In, in Revelation, it talks about removing lampstands of unfaithful churches. And he warns them, if you are not faithful, I will remove your lampstand. If you don't repent of the sin that I've shown you, I will remove your lampstand. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 10, we see that there is sin in the camp, and God deals with the sin of his people. He is after a people who will worship him exclusively as he commands, not a people that are clever and innovative when it comes to the worship of God, not a syncretistic people who incorporate a little paganism or idolatry into their worship of God. Now, I've said this for a while, but persecution and difficulty are coming in a way that we have not yet experienced in our life up to this point in time. I mean, all you have to do is look around. Look up to the north in Canada. Look at some of the crazy things that are happening in Washington. All we need to do is look around us and see that things are going to get weird and bad. Okay? Now, I'm not saying this to be an alarmist, but if you have cancer, you kind of want the doctor to tell you right? You don't want them to ignore it. And I, I really believe that difficulty and persecution are going to come in our lifetime. And the American church is in decline along with the nation. And if judgment begins in the house of God and the context of First Peter is persecution, what does that mean? I think it means that persecution has a way of purifying and cleansing the church. It has a way of weeding out false worshipers people whose hearts are not devoted to God, and strengthening and confirming the faith of people who really genuinely are trusting in Christ. It reveals what we worship, who we worship. It shows where, whether we are committed to God and his word, and we'll let God be true even if everyone else is a liar. And we are where we are as a nation because in large part, of the American church. Because we became uncomfortable with the God of the Bible and decided we didn't want to pay attention to certain parts. Because we made God into a teddy bear and forgot that when he comes down, the earth trembles and mountains melt before him. And if he did not spare his own people the discipline, his loving fatherly discipline, which we'll come to in just a second, he's not going to spare anybody else. So let me just like be real straightforward. There is an epidemic of pornography use among professing evangelical heterosexuals. We have not consecrated to our, ourselves to God wholly and have adopted idols of the culture. We have abandoned the worship of God in our homes and families and contented ourselves for once a week gatherings. And then we seek to be entertained and have our emotions stroked with a feel-good platitude. And I'm talking about the broad evangelical American church here. We have bowed to the idols of ear tickling and worldly entertainment at the expense of biblically, biblical fidelity and knowing, loving, and worshiping the one true God as he reveals himself in his word. Instead of giving the people bi the Bible, we have turned to worldly pop psychology and story time that uses the Bible to say whatever we'd like it to say rather than what it actually said. And there, there are faithful pastors who sound the alarm and they stand at the watchtower and warn of our sad state as the American church and they are called bigots and ignored and minimized from within the church. 
Rather than being consecrated to God and standing on his word, we allow the culture to interpret and twist the Bible, and we readily embrace it. How many, how many churches have fallen prey to some kind of woke theology? It's syncretism. And it didn't start there, though. It started way before that. And the end of this kind of attitude is compromise and the removal of lampstands and becoming like the PCUSA or United Methodist Church. Idolatry and false worship is a lie that seeks to replace satisfaction in and worship of God with something lesser. And he loves us so much that he will ultimately slash the idols of his people and trample the high places so that he might be the exclusive love of their lives where we find rest and peace and joy. All people worship something. Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. And that gets at what God's after. He's after the heart. He's after the heart of his people here. He's after the heart of his people in the American church. He wants to capture the whole heart of his people, and so he will trample their idols that they might see their foolishness and return to him. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, God disciplines those that he loves. Those who are actual children receive his discipline. And he does that so that in our moments of foolishness, we would be convicted and repent and return to him. That we would, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy in 1 Peter 3.15. That we would keep ourselves free from idols in 1 John 5.21. That brings us to the third point of application, which is the grace of warning. There is a tremendous grace in warning. God warns his people that they might repent and turn to him. His warnings are grace that allow us to repent and return to him. His warnings are used by the spirit to prick our hearts and convict us of our failure to love and serve him. They are a call for us to flee to Christ for refuge. The whole point of the second oracle is no place is safe. So if no place is safe and judgment begins in the house of God, where is a safe place? The only safe place is to find refuge in Christ. And, and this ties back to the whole idolatry issue because Christ died on the cross to capture our whole hearts, that we would love him with all of our heart, that our hearts would be devoted to him, that we would seek evermore to follow him more closely. And it's an issue of the heart Israel and Judah's problem was their hearts were captured by other things. And the warnings of God are his grace. Look, you're in for destruction because your hearts are not mine. You are to be my people. And I am your God. And if you do not repent, there is no place safe. The warnings of Scripture call us to flee to Christ for refuge. Christ, who came and suffered on the cross for sinners, who died and rose again to renovate our hearts, who has given us a spirit and who loves us enough to warn us and use those warnings to turn our hearts back to him. God is not interested in false worship or half-hearted 
devotion. The northern kingdom was full-on pagan. The southern kingdom had a little paganism with the worship of Yahweh, and God will not have either, so he warns them that they might turn, that they might repent and find refuge in him where they were designed to find refuge. And for us, this warning is here that we might examine ourselves and in the areas where we are failing or where we have gone off course, turn to him. What is the pattern of your life? What is the longing of your heart? Are you willing to assess the deep caverns of your heart's longings honestly and determine whether or not you are holding out? That's, that's a scary thought because I don't think any of us will like what we find when we start looking there. And yet it's the only path to peace and comfort and wholeness. It's the only way we can live confidently in a world that hates that kind of devotion. It's the only way that we can follow Christ with our whole hearts. Listen, following Christ is a lifelong pursuit of being continuously transformed and changed more into the likeness of Christ. And God graciously gives us warnings to help in that process. They are there to lead us to discover where we must repent and turn our hearts back to God, where we need to change our azimuth and get back on course. And these warnings are given by a loving father who is seeking our good and loves us enough to warn us. Like imagine, if you, I don't, maybe you don't need to imagine some of you, but if you had a dad that said, this is what you need to do, and the first time you moved to the left or the right or failed to do it, bam! I mean, don't loving parents warn, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to have to discipline you. You need to obey me in this. This is the path to joy. Warnings are grace and love. The last point of application is this. We need to learn to lament the sin of the people of God. Lamenting sin reorients us to God. That's the point. It recalibrates our hearts to God. Do we mourn our own sin in a way that turns to God for deliverance? Or is mourning our sin something that is so foreign that the warnings of a loving father fall on deaf ears and dull hearts? Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to destruction. Because of Christ, we can lament our sin knowing that we are accepted. And if we will simply turn to him, our mourning will be turned to joy. We can lament because Christ bore the wrath for our sins on the cross. And so though we stray, a loving father is warning us to call us back. And part of the process of calling us back is teaching us to lament our sin, to feel godly sorrow, not out of fear of being outcast, but out of love for him. Because Christ has paid for our sin. Because we can go to him as a father and say, I messed up again. I need you. 
and trust that because of Christ, he will always accept us, will always forgive us, and will do the hard, difficult, surgical heart work that's necessary to bring us into greater fellowship with him and greater alignment of our hearts with his. Because of Christ, we can lament our sin knowing that if we simply turn to him, our mourning will be turned to joy. So let me tie this up with an example or illustration. This last week, we went to a freedom rally in Aurora. I was curious. They had food trucks. (laughs) So we all, I gathered up the family, and we all went and ate at food trucks. And uh, before the speakers came up, they invited a man up to pray. And before he prayed, he spoke for a few minutes and highlighted Israel. Not this text, but just Israel in general. And he said that God's judgment is always redemptive. And I'm, I'm on board with him at this point. I'm like, yes, absolutely. And then he started praying. He equated America as a nation of God's chosen people. He said that God had anointed Donald Trump. And then there was a lot of rhetoric that was totally detached from the Bible. The focus was on the sin of our nation. And maybe it's because I've been swimming in the waters of Micah chapter 1, but I found myself mourning. How did our nation get where we are? Is it not the sin of the church? Is it not the people who claim Christ allowing the wisdom of the age to dictate belief? Is it not the church losing its fear of God? Is it not the dull hearts of people who wander and divide their devotion to God? And what he was saying, what he was praying was representative of a lot of American conservative evangelicalism. As if, only, if, as if God only anointed Donald Trump and didn't anoint Joe Biden like he slipped in somehow without God's notice or approval. Bemoaning the sins of the nation while ignoring the idolatry present even in that very prayer. Equating America with some kind of special chosen people among the nations akin to Israel. And I found myself thinking, judgment begins in the household of God and we have much within the people of God, within the church to lament. We have lost our way. Now, I doubt there's anything that we can do in rural Nebraska to stem the tide of the nationwide direction. I'm not advocating that. I'm not thinking that we can do that. But what we can do is pay attention to our own house. We can lament our own sin. We can lament our sin individually and turn to God in repentance. We can commit ourselves to purging idolatry from our midst. We can stop hiding our idols And we can expose them to the grace of God to be purged and dealt with through the blood of Jesus. We can turn to Christ to forgive. We can turn to Christ to protect. We can turn to Christ to convict. We can turn to Christ to enable us to be faithful. We can turn to Christ to raise up other faithful people. We can turn to Christ for refuge as everything else in the world is falling apart around us. And know that there are still faithful churches and faithful people and faithful pastors that are saying the exact same thing. And we stand shoulder to shoulder with them. So whatever happens around us, it's not going to impact what we do. 
because we are going to be people of the word that heed the warnings of scripture and turn to God for leadership and direction. So let us be people who heed the warnings of scripture, who lament sin and find refuge in Christ. We should join Micah in lamenting the sin of God's people and we should respond like God is calling Jerusalem by lamenting our own sin and turning from that to Christ because judgment begins in the house of God. And he has provided a savior for us. Let's pray.